that uh, open in front of you that will help you. And uh, let me pray as we come to God's word again. Father, please, uh, as we do come and look at uh, these wonderful events now, Father, pray that we would see them not just as wonderful events of the past, but also see of how you work and in who you work today. Please, Father, reveal your word to us and would we respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, naturally, I think we all love to put people kind of on scales or spectrums. Uh, So when I was uh, a lot younger, I went to a number of cricket trials. uh, And as soon as you turn up there, immediately you're you're looking at people and trying to kind of work out, you know, are they any good? Um, Are they very good? Or they they actually know? Because what you're really trying to do is work out where you are in that spectrum. But we do it with all kinds of things. I don't think cricket trials, we do it with wealth or intelligence or how funny somebody is. I think we, we do it all time, all the time. But unfortunately, there are times when we also do that spiritually in our spiritual lives. And that, I want to say, is almost always a, a, an unhelpful and indeed dangerous thing to be doing. Now, one way that we can particularly, I think, find ourselves doing that is thinking about whether someone is more or less likely to be saved, so that someone is more or less likely to become a Christian. Um, let me kind of give us a couple of scales, because these are kind of ones that, that come up, particularly in our passage today. But, for example, we might put people on the kind of religious spectrum. So are they very religious? Did they grow up in a Christian family? Are they very interested in things of God or spirituality? Uh, I guess kind of the other end, kind of pagan, completely irreligious, have no sense or time for God whatsoever. Um, And then the other one we'll find in our, our passages today is this kind of wealth one, rich or poor. And in your minds, I want you to kind of... Um, think, think in your minds, like, where on this spectrum do you think kind of is the person who would be least likely to become a Christian? Where would you, you plot them? Or equally, where would you put, plot the person you're kind of most likely to become a Christian? Where would you put them? Well, when I was uh, a lot younger, in my kind of early Christian days, I think I would have very much um, thought, well, you know, the least likely people were those kind of rough kids at school. So they had a kind of no chance of them becoming a Christian. But then as I kind of grew up a bit, as I heard uh, the more of the Bible taught, as I read the Gospels and saw again and again, who was it who Jesus kind of hung around with when he came? You know, he was there with the, the sinners, the tax collectors, the um, prostitutes, you know, these people we've seen in Luke. Well, actually, then I kind of thought, well, yeah, no, they're more likely. And then perhaps the, the kind of very religious people, they are least likely. Well, this morning, we're going to, I guess, kind of answer those questions. And we're also going to have a challenge uh, to this idea of people plotting. As has been said, uh, we are going to be studying the book of Philippians this term. It was written to a church in Philippi, uh, which was a a major city in Macedonia. It was a Roman colony, so it was governed by the Romans. And today we're going to see how it was that this church was formed. The the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church 
This is the church that he was writing to. And we are going to see the first three converts, the the founding members of this Philippian church. And so in the coming weeks, as we approach the book of Philippians, we're going to have this in our minds, we're going to have this kind of basic understanding of where this church came from. We're going to understand a little bit more about why Paul loves them as he does. Paul, in Acts 16, uh, is on his second missionary journey. Now, so far, his, his, um, his work has been really confined to Asia Minor, which is the kind of area towards the, the right of the sea there. That's where he's been traveling thus far. But God gives him a vision, a vision telling him, no, go to Macedonia. And so for the first time, we see here, the first time the gospel kind of comes into Europe. It's a momentous occasion in Acts. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know that right back in chapter 1, uh, they were told that the disciples were told they were going to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world as it spreads out and out and out. And here is this happening. And so Paul Silas, the two characters we'll particularly see today, Timothy and Luke, who wrote Luke and indeed Acts, um, we see them set off for Europe and they set off to for Philippi. Now Paul's usual method whenever he turned up somewhere was to first go to the synagogue. That's where he would start um, his work. But in Philippi there was no synagogue. To, to form a synagogue you needed ten Jewish men and there presumably weren't ten Jewish men there. So there was no synagogue for Paul to go to. But he'd heard that there was a place of prayer. So verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And here we're going to come to our first convert, the first founding member of this Philippian church. But the big thing we're going to see again and again as we travel through these verses is that the gospel is for everyone. Now, as they would have thought back then, the gospel is for everyone, even Europeans. The gospel is even for Europeans. And here it is, the first one we're going to see, and that is Lydia. So let me read verse 13 and 14 again. Uh, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here's our first convert, Lydia. She is a wealthy worshipper. A wealthy worshipper. So she's wealthy, most likely. She was a dealer in purple cloth. And in those days, purple cloth was a very expensive material to be dealing in. And we see later, after her conversion, that she um, had a household. So she was most likely wealthy. And she was a worshipper. She, she wasn't fully converted, but she recognised the Lord Almighty to be the one true God. And Paul sits down, as teachers did back then. Aren't you glad you didn't live then? I'd be sat down, you'd all be stood up. 
Paul sits down and he begins to speak to the women there. And he explains the gospel that he's been traveling around sharing. The good news that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Paying for his people's sins. Defeating death once and for all. He ascended to heaven and is now reigning there. That any who would trust in him would be saved and enter relationship with God. He, he proclaims that message. And you see at the end of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Lydia may well have been interested in things of God before this, but if she was going to respond, if she was going to truly respond to the gospel that she heard, well then God must work decisively in her heart. You might have grown up in a Christian family. You might have been taught the gospel from word dots. But if you believed in the Lord Jesus, it is because God has opened your heart to do so. I think of a family member, a friend or a colleague, someone who you're desperate that they would come to know Christ, you're praying for. Well, if they are going to do that, the Lord must open their hearts. If we're going to see any fruit from A Passion for Life, the mission that we're working up towards Easter next year, if we're going to see anyone respond, it is only going to be because the Lord opens people's hearts. That's why we pray. At our previous church, we, um, some of the men um, had this little phrase, kind of, we're praying for each other's fridge people. Right? A bit, bit weird, isn't it? A bit kind of, kind of shorthand. Because what happened is that we encouraged everyone to write down the name of three people, three um, non-Christians who they'd love to, to see become a Christian, to write down three names and stick it on your fridge so that kind of when you got the, the milk out to make your cup of tea, you, you pray for them or whatever it is. So they came known as fridge people. Now, my list didn't actually ever make the fridge, but you, you get the gist. But wouldn't it be great for every single one of us to have three fridge people? Neighbours, friends family, whoever. Three people that you can put their name somewhere prominent that you're going to walk past to go, actually when you see that you're going to pray for them. Because if they're going to come to know Christ, it is only because the Lord opens their hearts to respond. As God did with Lydia. Paul preaches, the Lord opens her heart, she believes, she gets baptised. And not just her, but in fact her household too. And then as a clear sign that she's been saved, she convinces the missionary group to, to stay with her. So you see there um, at, in verse 15, after she was baptised in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so Lydia's house becomes this kind of base for the missionary work in Philippi. And here is the first European convert. Lydia, a wealthy worshipper, saved through the preaching of God's word and the Spirit's work in her heart. <coughs> Excuse me. Secondly, we have a demon-possessed girl. Now, we don't know her name, we don't know her background, but we know that she is possessed 
by an evil spirit, she, and she is a slave. So verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This girl, she was able to predict the future by this evil spirit, and her kind of owners were kind of pimping her out almost to kind of do this, to make money for themselves. Uh, now, literally, uh, it's, she had the, the spirit of a python. Um, because in those, sorry for scatter snakes. Um, it's the spirit, the spirit of a python, because in those days it was believed that the, the god Python enabled people to um, see the future. And she's exploited by her masters and made them a great deal of money. See verse 17, though. How remarkable is this? She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. How incredible that is, that this, this little girl, this girl possessed by an evil spirit as she is, saw so clearly who Paul and the others were. She follows them around crying out, servants of the Most High God, here they are. The way to be saved, they're going to tell you. And she keeps us up for many, many days. Now you might think this is kind of quite a good crowd puller, right? You've got this girl who's known for predicting the future and here she is kind of directing attention to Paul and the others. She's saying the kind of right thing as it were. But after a few days, Paul's had enough. Verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to the Spirit. uh, Sorry, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. I quite like the idea of this being the only miracle that was performed out of annoyance. Don't you? Just get out. I quite like the idea. It probably wasn't actually quite what, what happened. That, that word annoyed it kind of has the idea of being troubled or disturbed. Paul is troubled. He's disturbed by what this girl is saying. He's troubled. He's disturbed by probably this girl's suffering. But more importantly, he, he didn't want him and his message to be associated or in any way aligned with this evil spirit. He's troubled by what he says. Now, we're not told of her conversion, but I'm sure we're meant to see that it happens. That she was not only delivered from this spirit, but her sin as well. Here we have our second European converts. And Luke has a little play on words. So we find there in verse 18 that the spirit comes out or goes out of her. And then as the, um, as the spirit goes out, so in verse 19, the, o- the owners realise that their hopes of making any money goes out as well. And they're not happy. So verse 19, and when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, was, was going out, gone out, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They bring these false charges. 
And the lack of truth never stopped a a mob, did it? Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore garments off them. The magistrates, they're kind of the Roman leaders there, tore garments off them and gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. Uh, So the the, the, the Roman kind of um, uh, guards in those days would have carried this kind of... uh, a statue of one, but um, these thick rods, they were pieces of wood that were strapped together, kind of pretty big. And Paul, Silas and the others were beaten, or Paul and Silas were beaten with these massive rods because of what they'd done in rescuing this girl. But that's not enough for them. They think that Paul and Silas, they need a night in the cells to sort them out. And here we meet our final character, the jailer. We read from verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, This jailer, uh, he would most likely have been a retired Roman soldier, It was a kind of comfortable retirement post. And he's locked them up good and properly in the inner cells and their feet are in the stocks. But in verses 25 to 28, we get two incredible displays of God's power. Remarkable displays of God's power. First in verse 25, internally. So verse 25, at about about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Can I kind of picture a scene? You're there in Philippian prison, cell block A, cell 2 or whatever. You're there. And you've heard about these two prisoners who have been brought in earlier in the day. And you know that they have been severely beaten. And they're taken down to kind of a dungeon, the very kind of worst, like a solitary confinement, down in the middle. And as you're drifting off to sleep, voices start resonating up out of the depths. It's singing. These prisoners who wouldn't have been able to lie on their backs because their backs would have been in such a mess, they're singing. They're praising God. You can't quite believe it. And so you listen in. What an incredible display of God's power in the lives and the hearts of Paul and Silas that despite what they've gone through, yet still they turn to God. Praying and praising. Secondly, we get in verse 26 this external power. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Again, you're there in that cell and everything seems to start shaking. And then so much so that the door hinge pops off and the door falls out and then your chains fall loose from the walls and yet you don't try and escape. We don't know why. We don't know why the prisoners didn't try and escape at this stage. Were they following the example or the command of Paul, possibly? Whatever it is, they don't do so. But the jailer doesn't know that everyone's still there. So verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing the prisoners had escaped, that he'd rather die at his own hand than face execution for failing in his duties. 
But Paul stops in verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he asked this remarkable question, verse 30. And he brought them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What a great, also kind of strange question to ask. Why did he ask it? What must I do to be saved? Perhaps he'd heard of the, 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 he'd heard the, the servant girl, the, the demon-possessed servant girl, who was running around saying, these guys know the way to be saved, possibly. No doubt he'd have heard some of Paul and Silas's prayers and songs. Maybe some of that had sinked in. But surely the earthquake has something to do with it. Just to think for a second, why did God send that earthquake? Immediately, well, hey, God sent the earthquake, doors fell off, chains got loose, to get Paul and Silas out of there, right? But no. Paul and Silas didn't skedaddle as soon as uh, they could get out, did they? No, this was a display of God's power. And I think witnessing this, this jailer sees God's power and for whatever it was, made him realise that he was accountable to God and had to answer to God and realise that he'd wronged God. Whatever it was, he was convicted that he needed to be saved. And Paul and Silas, they, they answer him, first in summary and then in more detail, verse 31 And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the answer. In a nutshell, how how could they be saved? How can we today be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. If you're wondering how you can be saved, if you're wondering how you can have your, your, your crimes and your rebellions against God forgiven, if you're wondering about how you can be brought into relationship with God, here it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Notice it's believe in, not believe that. Okay? It's not believe that there is a God, not believe even that Jesus is God. It's more than just agreeing to facts It's believe in Jesus. Believe in his death to have paid for your sins. Believe and trust in him and none of your own works that you would be saved. And this message wasn't just for for the jailer, it was for his family too. And so Paul and Silas speak the word of God to to them and, and the whole household believes and is saved. And just like the uh, just like Lydia, the, the jailer shows, proves that he truly has believed. In verse 33, and he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He washed them, they washed him. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. And the passage ends with uh, Paul and Silas being vindicated, proving they weren't um, lawbreakers. But particularly, just, just jump down to verse 40. 
And so here we see this Philippian church forms. And so they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Here in Lydia's house, you've got Lydia. You've got the demon-possessed girl. You've got the Philippian jailer. got various members of their household, probably others as well, gathering as God's people. And we see so clearly here that the gospel is for all people. All people. Lydia, a wealthy worshipper. The girl, spirit-possessed slave. Prison guard, this Gentile jailer. And what a mixed bunch it is. But that is exactly the point. Good Jewish men, uh, including Paul before his conversion, said a prayer each morning. I thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Now, it wasn't, I don't think, so much actually kind of blasting those people, as, as wrong as it was, but what it was is that those, those three groups couldn't enjoy the kind of, didn't enjoy the full privileges of a Jewish man. They, they couldn't participate in uh, religious life to the full extent. And so they were generally thanking God that I'm not like that. I get to, to, to be part of everything. And yet how ironic... And how wonderful it was that we see the first European church, the first converts, are a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. And they form this first European church because the gospel is for all people, all nationalities, all religions, or none, all classes, all levels of wealth. We come back to our, our kind of graph and we, we plot the, the people on there. Well, we see firstly Lydia here, you know, wealthy worshipper. Um, then we see the slave girl right there, poor, pagan. And then the, the jailer, again, pagan, is, um, he was a Gentile, but again, wealthy. And yet we see the same gospel was for all of them. The message of how to be saved, of believe in the Lord Jesus, the same message for all of them. And they all responded, by God's grace, and this is the message that saves. Wherever somebody is on that diagram, again, just for a second, maybe you just want to plot yourself, like where, kind of where are you on that, that graph? Where are your friends, your, your family members, your neighbours, your colleagues, you know, those, three, those fridge people, maybe someone came to mind, where are they on that graph? Well, in one sense, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all where they are. Because the gospel is for all people. The same gospel speaks of one saviour, which saves all types of people. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure I've used this um, illustration since I've been back, but I, the time I remember this so clearly, or the times of kind of thinking, I'm not really sure about that, it was doing door-to-door. And you kind of go, go up some of those houses with like massive long drives and a huge house. And you, you kind of, your finger goes towards the knocker. You're like, they ain't going to be interested. And then other times, you kind of, perhaps kind of slightly rougher and you're not kind of quite sure. And again, I had that same kind of thoughts, like front looking for the bell, the dog's barking, like, ain't no way they're going to be interested. 
And then I kind of approached a house or a flat that looked a little bit like kind of where I live, and like, just maybe they might be interested. But actually, it's the same gospel saves all kinds of people. And we can change the axis to be kind of anything. So wealth and religious, intellectual, class, physical appearance, age, the amount somebody swears, whatever it might be. In fact, really what I want us to do is kind of lose that axis altogether. Just think of a circle or a square. Uh, and that circle, that square is person. Right? If they're a person, well then the gospel's for them. Now, I've got about two minutes. I just want to try and illustrate this, um, if possible. I don't know if this is going to work. But uh, can we just do a quick straw poll right, in, the, in the hall? Just nationalities. Alright, so uh, I'm going to start off, if you're brave enough, don't have to, but just shout out kind of your nationality or where you're from or whatever. So, so English, anyone, just, just shout, just shout. Sorry? Loudly. English. Chinese, once we've had English, once we've had it, leave it be. So English, Chinese, Hungarian, French, Caribbean, Nigeria, English, good. Ghana, Mauritius, sorry, Ethiopian, Kenyan, Egyptian, American, Malaysian, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Taiwan. Taiwan, fantastic. Four. South American. Whereabouts? Ecuador, 15. So 15, 15 nationalities, and that's just in the room. We'd have more upstairs. We'll have more at the 11:30. Uh, right. Ages. Any teenagers? Yeah. Right, any in 20s? Yeah, any in our, thir- any our 30s? 40s? None of you look a day over 45, so I don't know. Um, but just in case, 50s? 60s? No, short 70? Well, you're no comments, absolutely not. I've, simple straw part. I, I brought up in a Christian family. How's that? Brought up in kind of uh, of another religion, into a couple um, of no no religion at all. Okay, pretty even spread. Sorry for those at home. Um, I've hopefully kept you informed. Uh, so probably slightly more brought up in Christian family, pretty even with those of none, and then a few in, in other religions. Just a very simple, small way. Yeah, we are in this room a testimony to the fact that the gospel is for all types of people, and we could do that. We're not going to. But we could do that with annual salary, or favourite hobbies, or level of, experience, um, of education, experience in the school of life, number of tragedies we've been through. We could do it in anything. And we see that the gospel saves all types of people. We can have confidence in that. We see that in the Philippian church. We see that in our church. So when we've got those, those three people, those fridge people, they might be very different. I hope they are. But the gospel is the same gospel for each one of those three. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the wonderful news that Jesus is the saviour of the world. And he is the saviour of all types of people. Father, pray that we would truly be believing in him, clinging to him, trusting in him, for our salvation. 
And please give us confidence to that he is the saviour for our loved ones, our friends, colleagues, family. Please, Father, would we see this more and more evidence of this as we share your word and as you open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, we'll just before I hand over to Will, just two things. So, first one is, Holy is going to help us just have a little bit in mind so when we come to Philippians, um, who the church uh, was that Paul was writing to. But I want to encourage us, really, through the term, we're going to do this in a number of ways as the term goes on. I would love us, as a church family, to have Philippians, as it were, in our blood through this next term. And there are a number of ways, I say, that we'll, we'll come back and through this. But one way that I want to be encouraging us to do is by memorizing some scripture, memorizing the Bible. So the, the reason for doing uh, that is because uh, the act of memorizing, you kind of go over and over and over it again. And then once you've memorized it, you can think about it uh, again and again and again. So from next Sunday onwards, I'm going to be sharing one verse that I would encourage you to pick to maybe learn over the following week um, as it comes up. I'm going to throw it out there. I am planning, I'm going to try, I don't know if I'm going to succeed, I'm going to try and memorize the whole book. If you'd like to join me in that quest, um, you can drop out at any time. If you'd like to give it a go, um, speak to me afterwards, send me an email, rich at lionsdown.org, uh, and I'll share kind of the breakup of how I'm going to do that. But the reason, uh, get in touch with me today, because I'm going to do that in advance. Because how good would it be for you to turn up to the service having spent a week meditating on that passage already? Crazy idea. No one takes me up on it. I don't mind at all. But uh, regardless, um, from next week, I'll be sharing one verse to encourage you to, to learn uh, as we go through. Thanks, Phil.